0: So, 500 years ago, um, almost to the day, there's a man named Martin Luther. He nailed 95 propositions, 95 theses, to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. And that was an event that would spark what we now refer to as the Reformation. Um, but for those of you who were at the... Uh, Last weekend when I did uh, the lecture on, on that, or those of you who may have gone and listened to that, if not, that's online, uh, uh, part of the Reformation weekend celebration. Um, I told the whole story of the Reformation from Martin Luther all the way to uh, TCPC, 500 years of, of history. And we were there for an hour and a half. I know that's like, woohoo, that sounds great. But it, it, was, it was, it was cool. Uh, and uh, I think you'd be blessed uh, to, to learn our story and to learn our history. But for those of you who have listened to it or were there, you know that there was so much more to the story than just that moment where Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door. Um, Before the Reformation could take over the world, the Reformation had to take over Martin Luther. Before before Reformed theology could spread like fire, which it did, it had to burn within the hearts of the Reformers and that's what happened Uh, Martin Luther discovered the gospel which liberated him first and then liberated all of Christendom behind the pioneer of the Reformation behind this man we call Martin Luther which we've tended to uh, turn into this hero when in reality behind him uh, was a deeply fearful uh, troubled very very anxious crippling anxiety soul Uh, heaped down with guilt and shame terrified to death of death it consumed him every day the fear of dying and the fear of facing judgment final judgment Um, he tried his best to do away with the problem exhausting himself with kind of this unending self-righteous quest of penance Uh, painfully punishing himself for any wrongdoings, uh, determinedly trying to construct for himself a goodness that he hoped could be acceptable in the sight of God. It's not a stretch to say that nobody in history of the world tried harder to make themselves right with God than Martin Luther. And the more he tried, the worse it got. The more he tried to do righteousness, the more guilt-ridden he became. So what happened is Martin Luther began to hate God. He began to hate God for his standard, and he began began to hate himself for his failure to meet God's standard. And what happened is he just fell into this torturous pit of kind of uh, introspective despair and depression that he could not get out of. But in the darkness, at the, and this is the way God so often works, at the bottom, at the depths, when finally he came to the end of the darkness, staring into the abyss, a hating God, hating himself, a light dawned. It was a light that would set fire to his soul and eventually would set fire to the world. And now 500 years later, that fire of the Reformation burns still, even in this church which, which holds the theology of the Reformation so dear. What was the light that Luther discovered in the darkness? No doubt it was a journey to get him there, but the final moment, the spark that, that ignited the fire, was one verse, the verse that is before us this morning. God used Romans 1.17 to change Martin Luther who in turn changed the world. And I wanted to do the same for us this evening. And my prayer is that the journey that Martin Luther went through, which was a decade-long journey, to get him to that point, my prayer is that that journey, that the Spirit would be so gracious to let us experience his whole journey here in 20 minutes. The best way to honor the Reformation is to personalize the Reformation. So let's do that together this night. My hope is that we encounter two things from this verse. The burden of Martin Luther and the freedom of Martin Luther. So I want us to enter into his despair and then I want us to be liberated like he was liberated. But let's start with the burden of Martin Luther. What he faced. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what is the it there? That refers to the previous verse where Paul says, it was our assurance of pardon, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And now in verse 17, he says, For in it, so the it is the gospel. Your translation, if you're using a different one the ESV, may even just have the gospel inserted there um, and take that liberty, which is fine. So he's saying, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, in the next point, we are going to look at the epiphany that Luther had about this idea of the righteousness of God. But I want us first to understand what Martin Luther already understood, the righteousness of God in the conventional sense. The gospel does begin with the revelation of the righteousness of God in the sense of it begins with this terrifying news that God is righteous. God is righteous. It's not just that um, He perfectly meets some standard of righteousness, it's that He is the standard of righteousness. He defines what righteousness is. What is righteous? That which God is. What is unrighteous? That which God is not. Now, the righteousness of God has a justice component to it. If God is truly to be righteous, then God must judge all unrighteousness. Otherwise, He's not righteous. Or, to put it another way, If he were to permit any unrighteousness, then he would compromise his own righteousness because to be righteous is to judge unrighteousness. So a crucial component of the righteousness of God, and this is what Luther understood really well, and this is what tormented him. A crucial component of the righteousness of God is the condemnation of all unrighteousness. Now, what implications does that the righteousness of God have for unrighteous people like us? Well, it has really scary implications. Listen, He loves you. He loves us. But not more than He loves His righteousness. That is, though He loves us and though He wants us, He will not indeed, He cannot compromise His righteousness in order to have us. And so for the sinner, which we all are, For the sinner, the righteousness of God means the condemnation of God. Now, I realize that in our day, what I just said there, um, and this is our day. This is unlike Luther's day. In Luther's day, what I just said there, that the righteousness of God demands the condemnation of God, the judgment of God, all this stuff, that was just a given. In Luther's time, nobody questioned that. That wasn't a problem. And really, that's been like that up until the past, I would say, uh, 100 years of our culture. But I understand that in our time, um, and this is okay, you just have to speak into the context that you are, but in our time, the concept of divine judgment and condemnation is wholly unacceptable and even reprehensible and needs an apologetic. And here's just what I would say very briefly. What you need to understand, what you need to understand is that everyone subscribes to to the notion of the righteousness and justice of God, even though they think they don't. Even if, you te- even if you tell me or even if you claim to not believe that there will be an ultimate justice, a judgment day, whatever you want to call it, you're fooling yourselves. And I think you know that it's actually true. And here's how. In the next chapter of Romans, Paul expounds upon the idea of judgment. Um he, 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 he makes the claim here in chapter one, and then he expounds on judgment in chapter two. And what he does is he brilliantly traps everyone into acknowledging not just the reality of judgment, but it, the, the appropriateness of judgment. This is what he says He says, You have no excuse, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Now, here's his reasoning. The moment you pass judgment, you are admitting there is a thing called justice. In fact, you are demanding that there be a thing called justice. And the moment you admit that there is justice, you are admitting that you yourself are under the standard of justice. And the moment you do that, you condemn yourself because you fall short of what is just. I'll say it another way. The moment you demand anything from the world, the moment you say that's right and that's wrong, The moment you say, that should not be, and that should be. The moment you say to anybody, you should not do that to me, you should not do that to them, whatever. The moment you make a judgment call, you are not just admitting there is justice, you are demanding that there is justice. And the moment you demand that there is justice, then you are placing yourself under that same demand, which you cannot escape. In other words, you can't have it both ways. You can't have an existence where you demand right and wrong and yet expect to be the exemption of that existence. And most importantly, you can't judge and then tell God he can't judge you. Either justice is a thing or it's not. Either righteousness and justice is a thing or it's not. If it's not, then quit acting like it is. Quit demanding that it is, which is impossible. Good luck with that. You cannot do that. If it is, then you have to play the game, too. You have to play by the same rules. Now, here's the big problem when it comes to the idea of justice. You couldn't even escape your own condemnation. Here's what I mean. If you were only judged based upon your standard of righteousness, then you would fall miserably short of that. If your judgment day was simply, let's see how you measure up to what you have said is right and wrong. So, you spent a lifetime demanding justice from the world. You said, this is right, this is wrong, so forth. Okay, we'll just use your standard. How do you measure up to your standard? You know it. You would fall miserably short of your own standard of righteousness and condemn yourself. But it gets only worse. God couldn't care less about your standards of righteousness. He is righteous, He is the standard of righteousness. And He will judge us on nothing less than His own perfect standard of righteousness. So let me state this as plainly as possible. And you may may have never had a preacher be this honest with you about the problem. Uh, But I really mean that I want us to enter into the torment that Martin Luther experienced. This is the torment. And may it torment our souls likewise. There really is a God. That God really is righteous. You really are going to die. You really are going to face the righteousness of God. And you will not be able to endure that. God must and he will condemn because he is righteous. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about death? What are you going to do about judgment day? You can deny it with a secular answer and say, there's no such thing, only the unenlightened believe such myths. When we die, we just die, there's nothing else, that's all. You can believe that if you want, it doesn't matter, it's still coming. You can ignore it by numbing out its reality with entertainment and shopping and hobbies and pleasures and addictions or whatever you want, however you want to distract yourself, however you want to numb out its reality, it doesn't matter, it's still coming for you. You can do the religious thing and you can try to beat the system. That's what Martin Luther tried. And that's what every other religion is offering you, a way to try to beat the system. Be a good person. Work off your bad deeds with good deeds. You could try that. It doesn't matter. Luther tried that much harder than you will ever try. And he couldn't pull it off. You can't either. It's still coming for you. You can fear it. You can hate God for it. You can say this isn't fair. You can rage at the heavens. You can say he's not a good God. You can yell at him. You can hate him like Luther did. You can say he should never do such a thing. It doesn't matter. He's righteous. It's coming. What are you going to do about your judgment day that with every heartbeat and every breath draws nigh? I tell you what you should do. You should wake up. You should sober up to life's truest reality, which is death, and it's coming. Sober up prosperous Americans who don't like to think and talk about death. We just like to, don't want to think about it. Sober up American churches that just trifle about with entertaining self-improvement messages that have nothing to do with eternity. Sober up and tremble as Martin Luther once did, because what he discovered in the righteousness of God is true. There is absolutely no escape. You cannot escape it, and you cannot survive it. The righteousness of God has all of us trapped, and there is no way out. Unless. Unless God, who is righteous, however in His sheer mercy decides to find a way and offer a way for you to escape. He should not do it. He must not do it. You do not deserve for him to do it. But will he yet have mercy? To every unrighteous sinner facing condemnation, the good news, the gospel literally means good news, The good news is that God has had mercy and that he is offering a way out of his own righteous judgment. He proclaims a way out through the gospel. And this good news is what Martin Luther discovered in his darkness and despair and torment. It is the good news that he announced to the world and it is the good news that took over the world and has taken over the world for 500 years. You ready for the good news? I hope. Let's look at the freedom of Martin Luther. Martin Luther knew what the righteousness of God meant in the traditional sense. And it freaked him out like it should have freaked all of us out right now. It tormented him. He knew what the righteousness God and it burdened him greatly. But Luther was about to discover, which in reality it was a rediscovery. That's one of the things that happened in the Reformation. He, he went through it and he, was like, he started looking back he was like, Oh my goodness, this is, Augustine was saying this. This this is just a rediscovery. The good news of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God to Martin Luther was bad news, like we just talked about. He discovered the good news of the righteousness of God, and it set him free. And it all broke through in our verse. Let's go slowly through it. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now what is interesting about that is that Paul speaks of the righteousness of God as something that is revealed. I thought the righteousness of God was just something that is. It needs no revelation because God just is righteous, it's just an attribute, it's just necessarily who God is. But Paul is talking about it as something that is revealed, that puzzled Luther. That's a weird way to talk about the righteousness of God. Much more, Paul says, that the revelation of the righteousness of God is gospel, is good news. But Luther, to Luther, the righteousness of God was the worst news, as we just saw. Nothing is worse news for sinful humanity than the righteousness of God. But here it's talking about it as gospel. It's revelation as gospel. And even more bizarre is this language from faith, for faith. In the Greek, that's a grammatical construct, meaning from beginning to end. From beginning to end, this is a faith. What is Paul talking about? How is the righteousness of God revealed? How is the righteousness of God good news? And how is the revelation connected to faith? Well, the next clause was Luther's breakthrough. As it is written... So we know that Paul's about to explain himself. And then he chooses this obscure quote from Habakkuk. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Those six words became Martin Luther's epiphany. The righteous shall live by faith. He says, wait a minute, I've been trying harder than any man alive to live by effort, by works, by discipline, by punishing myself. I have been living by penance and it has gotten me no righteousness. In fact, it's only deepened my awareness of my own unrighteousness. But Paul is saying that those who are righteous are those who do nothing, who live by faith, not by active effort of, I will live to do something to construct a righteousness. They are those who live by passive faith. What does it mean that the righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel? What does it mean that we are righteous by faith and suddenly it hits Him? Righteousness is not something that we produce by our own effort. Righteousness is something that we receive by faith. And what righteousness is it that we receive by faith? Paul says, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And Luther says, oh my goodness! Paul isn't talking about the righteousness that God is. Paul is talking about the righteousness that God is offering. Paul's not describing here the righteousness of God. Paul is is offering to us the righteousness of God. And Luther says, I've missed it all. The good news that Paul is announcing is the news of the revelation of justitia alienum. An alien righteousness is what he said. It's an alien righteousness, meaning it's a righteousness outside of me. That's not mine, that is freely offered to us because I don't have a righteousness of my own and I'm completely helpless to produce a righteousness of my own. So the righteousness of God, which is our greatest fear, now is our greatest gift. God is offering us His own righteousness. And so the righteousness of God turns from point 1, which was Luther's greatest fear, to point 2 luther's greatest joy and finally martin luther is free i read his own words when i discovered this talking about romans 117 when i discovered this i was born again of the holy ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and i walked through And I extolled the righteousness of God with a love as great as the hatred with which I once had for it. I fell in love with the righteousness of God at the same passion that I once hated the righteousness of God. Thus, it was in this place, in Paul, where the gate of paradise was opened. And with that, everything is open. The entirety of Scripture comes alive for Luther, which Luther knew so well, he had so much of it memorized, but finally he understood it. He saw that the righteousness by faith was everywhere, even back to the original beginning of the entire story of redemption. With Abraham, the first one that God calls unto Himself, it says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Luther starts looking around and says, it's always been this way. And then he looks at the Gospels and he sees Jesus saying that I have come to offer my life as a ransom or, or I have loved, God so loved the world that, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then he looks at Paul and Galatians in particular and the whole thing just explodes with meaning. He saw that the righteousness of God that is revealed, that Paul's talking about, was the incarnation of God. Jesus himself, that the alien righteousness, the righteousness outside that we receive by faith, is the very righteousness of Jesus. He saw that his filthy unrighteousness, what happens to our unrighteousness? Luther sees that what happens is that Jesus received that in his death and condemnation. Martin Luther finally sees the gospel. And Martin Luther is free, finally, and you can be free too. What Luther discovered 500 years ago, you can discover tonight. <laughs> and I say that to non-Christians and Christians alike, to those who would not call themselves Christians or don't really know. Kind of maybe uh, I'm a Christian in a nominal sense. I I, I kind of dabble, so to speak. Whatever. Um, here's what I would say. I would say, first of all, that point one actually is true. You may have never had anybody be so honest with you about it, but it is true. There is a God, and you will stand before that God in judgment. But I have an offer for you. The greatest offer you will ever receive. In the name of Jesus, as a minister in His name, I would like to offer you the righteousness of jesus you don't have to stand before god in your unrighteousness you can stand before god in his righteousness a righteous god must condemn unrighteousness but a righteous god must accept righteousness you can be free from the fear of death and judgment this there you could go to bed with death settled You could go to bed tonight not afraid of judgment, not because you have produced any righteousness of your own, but because you have possession of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But Christian, those who are righteous in Christ, it is time to start believing and living like what I just said is actually true because it is. What happened with Martin Luther is he discovers this, and then it kind of was just this journey the rest of his life of believing it again and again and again, more and more and more. He would go back down into his depression, he had to remind himself of it again, and it was just a struggle the rest of his life to take that one truth that set him free and continually return to it for his own liberation. And so I say to Christians, it's time to start believing and living like this is actually true, because it is. (coughs) Enough with the endless introspection, trying to convince yourself that you're accepted in the sight of God, that's getting you nowhere. It is an alien righteousness, not an introspective an introspective case that you've made in your mind that worked out enough with the introspection enough with the self-condemnation and self-hatred of yourself enough with singling out certain sins that you think are really really bad and you've elevated a certain level and when you do them it causes you to doubt your assurance things like that enough with the comparison game that goes on within Christianity, where you envy the performance of other Christians and condemn yourself that you're not able to perform like them, enough with dwelling on the past, maybe even that one thing in the past that you cannot get past, that is crippling you, it's gone. It doesn't matter it's over. Let the past go because it's not your past. That was Jesus' past on the cross. Your past is His life. Your future is His life. Enough dwelling on the past. Enough fearing the future. It is enough to hell with your religion. That's where it belongs. Live the heaven of God's gospel. Martin Luther on his deathbed weary and battered from a lifetime of suffering and protest against the church. His closest companions by his bedside. They have to shout um, because he's lost his hearing by this point. And so they have to yell at him. His deathbed. They yell out, Reverend, are you ready to die trusting in your Lord Jesus Christ and to confess the doctrine which you have taught in His name? This is it. A man who was terrified of death is about to die. A man who was crippled with anxiety over judgment is moments away from facing judgment. Are you ready to die trusting this doctrine? Which you have taught to the world, which has started a revolution, wonderful, but now it gets real. Are you ready to die trusting the doctrine that you have taught. Luther whispers all he can say, one word, the last word of his life, he whispers, yes. And he dies to go face God clothed in the righteousness of God. What about you? Are you ready to die? Are you ready to face the righteousness of God? If by faith you belong to Christ, then I will answer that for you. You are ready you are as ready as you will ever be because you have been made ready you are ready to face the righteousness of God because you yourself have been given the very righteousness of God let me thank him Jesus thank you for your gospel thank you for your alien righteousness that you did not have to give us but you have given and provided thank you that you have us that uh, Our sin was yours, and your righteousness is ours. Bless you for the good news. May it never get old. May it capture us this evening, maybe for the first time. We pray in thanksgiving to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.